That's great. Appreciate it. Good morning, everyone. It's an honor to share the word with you this morning. Let's turn to Romans chapter 5. We're going to be reading verses 6 through 8. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I grew up learning that God is love and that he loves me. One of my earliest childhood memories was learning and singing the song, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know. And as I grew into adult, I continued to believe in God's love, but it got more complicated. In good times, nothing seemed easier to believe. When I was doing well, when things were going well with my wife and I, the kids were healthy and doing well in school, we had good friends to enjoy life with, we weren't burdened by any pressing needs, who wouldn't believe in God's love and goodness? But when the certainty of God's love erodes very quickly, doesn't it? When things start to go south, when the good times are interrupted with some of the more sobering realities of life, a close friend dies, a car gets stolen, there's a financial loss, maybe marriage problems, an accident, a betrayal, an unwelcome diagnosis, or chronic health issues. How does one process the love of God in light of these things? How can a God who loves us allow these things into our lives? During difficult times, most of us respond in one of two ways. We either get upset with God and we complain about how unfair life is, or because of our own failings and weaknesses, we conclude that we're not worthy of God's love and care. Both responses have one thing in common. They both call into question the love of God. If God loves me, why is this happening? If God loves me, why isn't my life going better? If God loves me, he sure has a funny way of showing it. Wayne Jacobson, who co-authored the book The Shack, which was so popular a few years ago, says that we approach God's love in the same way that little kids play the daisy pedal game. You guys know the game? He loves me. He loves me not. And I can attest to you that boys play this game too. She loves me. She loves me not. Now, we never took these games very seriously because if we got to the end of the daisy and we didn't like the outcome, we just got another daisy and started all over. Now, when we grow up, Believe it or not, we still play this game with God. But instead of using pedals, we pluck our circumstances to try to figure out how God feels about us. I got a race. He loves me. I just lost my job. He loves me not. God answered my prayer. He loves me. My child is seriously ill. He loves me not. My boss gave me a compliment. He loves me. The transmission on my car went out. He loves me not. I just met the love of my life. He loves me. I think I'm going to be single for the rest of my life. He loves me not. Using circumstances as a way of determining God's love is as flawed as pulling petals from a daisy. If we define God's love only by our limited understanding of our circumstances, we will never really discover who God is. But God has provided a better way. Our daisy pedal approach to Christianity can be swallowed up with the undeniable proof of his love on the cross of Calvary. If we really understand what happened on the cross, it will open the door to an understanding of his love that will never again drive us to question his affection for us or cause us to question whether or not we deserve that love. 
And that's the adventure I want to go on with you this morning. Does that sound good? All right. It's not a surprise that many of us, including myself, struggle to believe and live in the love of God. Oh, sure, we know it in our heads. We see it in the word. We sing it in our songs. I don't know if you noticed, but most of the songs this morning had the theme about God's love. We also are very familiar with all the Christian cliches, and we repeat them, we repeat them all the time. God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. We know that. But when the circumstances of life begin to go south, our confidence in his love and goodness takes a hit, doesn't it? <clears throat> Why is that? It's not surprising, really. Everything in this life is based on rewards. Work, school, friendships, and even the way we parent is all based on being rewarded for good behavior. So it's only natural to carry this over in the way we think about our relationship with God. If we do what pleases him, then he loves us and blesses us. And if we don't, he doesn't. Now, in our heads, we know that this isn't good theology. But in practice, the way we live our lives day in and day out, that's what we believe. And most of the time, without even knowing it. Recognizing this reality and switching from a performance-based Christianity to one that is deeply rooted in the Father's affection is no small transition. I came to Christ when I was 18 years old, and I knew that God loved me. But it wasn't until 30 years later that I began to live in the revelation of his love. And I'll tell you that that revelation revolutionized my Christian life. And that was about 15 years ago. I'm 64 now. I began to walk in a way that had never walked with God before. It brought much more joy and freedom in my walk with the Lord. And my prayer this morning is that some of the things that I share with you might help you to have a deeper understanding of his love for you. In fact, I'm going to pray that for you right now. Heavenly Father, you have gone to great lengths to demonstrate to us that you love us. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be here this morning to open our eyes, to open our hearts, to illumine our understanding in a deeper way so that we might see in a new way how much you love us and how much you desire to be in a relationship with us, not just in heaven, but right now, today, and all the days of our lives. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to this end. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's look at some evidences of his love. This is point one of my message. Let's look at the evidence first from history. We were created by God to have a relationship with him. Now, God is complete and perfect in every way. He didn't create us to meet some deep need that he had for us. But for whatever reason, God wanted to have a large family to share his love, to share his beauty, and to share his glory. Now, in order for that relationship to be meaningful, we had to have free will. I mean, God could have created us like robots without the possibility of sinning. He could have kept the serpent, the serpent out of the garden. He could have prevented Adam and Eve from eating from the forbidden tree. But that would have eliminated free will. And it would have prevented God from enjoying the type of relationship that he wanted to have with us. God wanted voluntary love of those who would know him and trust his love. Because God put such a premium on voluntary love, he was willing to let the tragic events of Eden take place. From God's perspective, the joy of living eternally with him was worth all the pain and suffering down through the ages. In the eternal counsels of God, knowing that Adam and Eve would fall, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit agreed to a plan that would allow them to experience the ultimate desire of the ages, which was to live in intimate fellowship with us. God has not revealed to us what adventures we're going to go on in all of eternity. But if we could see things as he sees things, I think we would agree that it was all worth it. In fact, Paul says as much in Romans 8, 18. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. All the suffering that we've endured in humanity is not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. 
You see, the drama of this world right now fits into a bigger drama of something that has been going on before this world began and will continue after it ends. We already know from the book of Isaiah that the bigger story included the creation of angels and the subsequent rebellion of a third of them. We also understand from the book of Genesis that God allowed the drama to continue by permitting the serpent or Satan into the pristine garden of his new creation. We can also assume that it was Satan's desire to continue to try to thwart God's plan for his new creation. God was obviously aware of all of this, didn't come as a surprise to him, and yet he proceeded with the plan, the plan that even his enemy could not conceive of. And though there would be much suffering down through the ages as a result of the fall, and though many in the course of history would not embrace him, many others would. And somehow the pain of those who don't will be swallowed up in the joy of those who do. As a result, the tragedy of the garden becomes a stepping stone for the greater good that God desired. He would actually use the the fallen state of this world as an incubator for his eternal purposes. The tragic events in the Garden of Eden began a process that would actually take God himself to the cross, where in the ultimate sacrifice of his love, he would triumph over his enemy, he would triumph over sin, and make a way for his creation to be redeemed and reconciled. When God created Adam and Eve, he enjoyed the kind of intimate fellowship in the Garden of Eden that he always desired with his creation. But it didn't last long, and after the fall, our relationship with God dramatically changed. Down through the centuries, men and women have stood at a great distance from God, ashamed by their own sin and intimidated by his holiness. With only a few notable exceptions, people wanted nothing to do with the immediacy of God's presence. When God shook Mount Sinai, the people begged Moses to go to God for them. God was a terrifying figure, and feeling safe in his presence was unthinkable. Now fast forward 4,000 years, and we have God coming to earth in disguise. He was a babe in a manger. Then he was a young man growing up in Nazareth, and then finally a young man walking in the hills of Galilee. No one had any idea that God had come to live among them. The disciples were in the physical presence of God, and they were completely unaware of it. Now, with Jesus' extraordinary wisdom and his amazing miracles, the disciples knew that he was a great man and eventually believed that he even might be the promised Messiah. But no one expected the Messiah to be God himself. They expected the Messiah to be uh, someone like Moses or David or Elijah, empowered by God. But the idea that God would actually take on human flesh and live among them would be absolutely unthinkable. So for the first time since God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve, he was among his people again the way he always wanted to be. I think that it was a delight for Jesus to be with his disciples and the common folk of his day. People with broken lives were drawn to him, not repelled by him. And his disciples felt so secure in their relationship with him that could actually be genuine and vulnerable. Even the last day with his disciples, before Jesus would be crucified, they hadn't really figured out who Jesus was. Jesus said, If you really knew me, you would know my father as well. And then you remember what Philip said. He he said to Jesus, show us the father, Lord. And Jesus said to Philip, don't you know me even after I've been with you for this long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the father. They just didn't get it. In a few hours, he would be taken from them. He would be tried. He would be tortured. He would be crucified. But the disguise was about to come off. The next time the disciples would see him, he would be the resurrected Christ. There would be no hiding who he really was then. And when the resurrection unmasked who he really was, Jesus didn't want that realization to destroy the relationship that he had with them. He wanted to show them something even better, though, something that must have been very difficult for them to understand. 
He was helping them move from a relationship with him, which they had known, to a relationship with the Father, who they didn't know, to a relationship with the Holy Spirit, who would live inside them. Listen to the words Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, 20. He said, on that day, referring to the day of Pentecost, when they would receive the Holy Spirit, on that day, you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. The disciples must have said, come again? I mean, could you say that again, Jesus, but a little bit slower this time? Could we put up the first graphic? Jesus said, on that day, you will realize that I am in my Father. Next graphic. There it is. You are in me, and I am in you by the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine what the disciples thought as they heard Jesus say this? In that short but profound verse of Scripture, Jesus revealed what God's desire had been from the first day of creation, which is to invite men and women into a relationship with him, the same relationship he had known with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all eternity. And I bet it was difficult for Jesus to contain his his excitement. Even though the disciples didn't understand what he was saying, Jesus just revealed the desire of the ages the desire of the ages, which is longing to, for God to live in intimate union with his creation. Now, this must have sounded crazy to the disciples. I mean, how can mere human beings enjoy friendship with the almighty God who created the universe? I mean, does he really care about us that much? Does he really delight in me with all of my sinfulness and brokenness? Yes. This is God's idea. He wants it. He actually wants it. He has said so in Scripture through so many tender images. The Bible describes us as young children who are beloved by their father. The Bible describes us as as a bride anxiously waiting for her bridegroom. The Bible describes us as friends, dear friends, who are worthy enough to die for. The Bible describes us as little chicks who would run under the protective wings of the mother hen. He obviously is serious about the intimacy and the security of a relationship with him built on love and trust. But here's the problem. We're so aware of our own sinfulness and the ways God surely must be disappointed with us. And we're so aware of the disappointments that we have with him because of the things that he hasn't done or has done that we lose our confidence in his love. It all comes down to trust. We have been taught that God wanted obedience from Adam and Eve. Don't eat of this fruit of this tree. But I think that what God really wanted was their love and trust. I can obey God and still distrust him. But I can't distrust him and walk in disobedience. Adam and Eve's sin was a lack of trust in God more than anything else. And the enemy succeeded in causing them to believe that God was holding out on them. Let's read Genesis 3, 4. The serpent is speaking and he says, you surely won't die if you eat of the fruit. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He simply can't be trusted, the serpent said. Now it was obvious that Adam and Eve had not yet come to know God as he is. And so the enemy took advantage of that. Have you ever thought about this? What would Eve's response have been to the enemy, to the serpent, if she really had trusted God? A look of confusion would have come over her face as she tried to hold back her laughter. Are you kidding? Are you talking about our God? The one who walks with us in the garden? The one who loves us so much that he's given everything for our good? You're saying that he would lie to us because he doesn't want us to be like him? That's absurd. We are his precious children, and he's our dear father. And she would have walked away without giving it a second thought. It all comes down to trust. Do we really trust him? Relationships are built on trust, and trust is built on real knowledge about who someone is. 
I like what David says in Psalm 9:10. He says, "For those who know your name will trust you. <clears throat> those who know God will trust him." So that begs the question, if you don't trust him, do you really know him? If I'm not confident that he really accepts me, if I'm not confident that God is always operating in my best interests, what does that say about who I think he is? Now, our circumstances and life experiences can confuse us, can't they? They don't paint a clear picture of who God is. And scripture can be confusing as well. It seems to paint contradictory portraits of God. On the one hand, he looks like a terrible judge to be feared. But on the other hand, he looks like a father who wants to embrace us. So which is it? In the Old Testament, we see God pouring out fire from heaven to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. He opened the heavens, or opened the earth rather, to swallow those who opposed Moses. And he commanded Joshua to practice ethnic cleansing in Canaan by killing all of the men, all of the women, all of the children, and all of the animals. That's one portrait of God. And then in the New Testament, we see Jesus telling us how much he loves us and how much he wants us to come to him as his children. We see him healing the sick. We see him forgiving sinners and murders. We see him going to the houses of sinners. We see him inviting children into his lap. And we see a father so tender that even the greatest sinner could run to his side in absolute safety. So what happened to God? Did he get saved somewhere between Malachi and Matthew? I mean, did God reinvent himself into a nicer, kinder, gentler God? Of course not. He is unchanging throughout all eternity. So is he both? Is he kind to those who are good? And is he vengeful toward those who aren't? That's why, that's exactly what some of us have been taught. And that's why we end up playing the daisy pedal game. He loves me. He loves me not. We sift through the circumstances of our lives to try to figure out if we're on his good side or his bad side. And if we think we're on his bad side, we either distance ourselves from him because we can't trust him, or we work harder to try to please him, and the merry-go-round of trying to figure out where we stand with God continues to turn. Now, before Jesus came into the world, we could only see God's actions, And his actions against sin made him appear as if he didn't care for people or was angry with most of them most of the time. His attempts to have a people for himself were often misunderstood, but Jesus changed all that by listening to Jesus' words and by watching how he lived and loved, we're able to see God's intentions and his motivations. When I have a chance to work with parents who are struggling with their teenage children or with couples who are struggling in their marriages, one of the things that I often say is, make sure when you communicate that you're communicating the intentions of your heart. It's really easy to misinterpret actions, but once someone sees the motivation of your heart, your actions become clear. Jesus fully reflected the Father's intentions so that we might know him as he really is and not be a victim of our own misinterpretation. Colossians 1 verse 19 says that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. Someone said this, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. I like that. You can see the same God of love and mercy and compassion in the Old Testament All you have to do is look a little bit harder and read between the lines. His wrath against sin was not his rejection of his people, but rather the expression of a furious love that would stand against anything that would separate him from his people. If we don't know or trust God, then we have a tendency to live in uncertainty and fear. Our Christianity becomes a have to instead of a want to. We have a tendency to take a minimalist approach to our faith that looks something like this. How much do I have to do to still be a Christian and get to heaven? I mean, I want all the things that God can give me, but I'm not sure if I want him. 
We end up loving God for our own sake rather than loving God for his sake, for who he is. And of course, this misses the whole point of what God wants for us and for himself. We have a father who loves us more than anyone else ever has or ever could. And he desires to bring us close to himself for all eternity. He compared this life with God as a treasure discovered in a field, which was so valuable that we would give up everything to possess it. And if our life with God doesn't seem that way, then maybe we really don't understand how God feels about us. Jesus came because he wanted to be very clear about who the Father was, about how he feels about us, and about his desire to live in intimate communion with us. So that's the evidence of history. Number two, the evidence of the prodigal father. In the story of the prodigal son, often the lessons of the parable, of course, are focused on the rebellious son. The word prodigal means wastefully extravagant. And of course, it refers to the extravagant way that the son squandered his inheritance. But really, this parable should be called the prodigal father because this story is really about the extravagant love of the father. The father is the central figure in this story. And more than anything else, this story teaches us about who our heavenly father is and what a father he is. Now, you guys know this story very well, so I won't take the time to go over the details. But what's so amazing about the father in this story is that his actions at each point are completely opposite of how we would expect a loving father to act. We would expect a loving father never to give such a rebellious, disrespectful, and irresponsible son any inheritance, much less an early inheritance. We would expect that a loving father wouldn't welcome him back so extravagantly without making him take responsibility for his foolishness. The father's actions make no sense at all unless unless he wanted something else. And what the father wanted is the central theme of this story. What the father wanted and was so desperate to have, he would spare nothing to get. And what was it that the father wanted? He wanted a relationship with his sons. The younger son saw him as a means to his own pleasures. And the older son saw him as a taskmaster to work in his fields. Now both lived in the house, but neither one was at home in his love. The father wanted intimate fellowship with both of his sons. He wanted his sons to know how deeply they were loved, and he wanted their love in return. Now, which of us doesn't understand that? Which of us parents doesn't understand that? There is nothing worse than being estranged from your own children. And there's nothing better than those moments that we have with our adult children where we enjoy their friendship and their intimacy. When our kids got married, Connie and I were shocked that her kids would call us up and ask to go on a date. We were shocked when they would invite us over to their house or ask if they could come over. And it finally dawned on us, honey, our kids really like us. (laughs) They really like us and they want to be with us. And there's no greater feeling in the world. The whole reason Jesus told this story was so that we could see the heart of the father. And the prodigal came back and was willing to work as a slave. The older son was missed, miffed because he didn't feel that he was being recognized for the sacrifices that he had made. But the father didn't want his younger son's service or his older son's sacrifice. He wanted them. He wanted to have an intimate relationship with them. That's the message of this parable. And that's God's message to us today. He wants us to know how much we are loved and he'll stop at nothing to get that message across to us. Because neither of the boys understood their father's love, they were both living, in a sense, in a distant land. Though each of them were at home, they were far away from home because both of them were living less loved. We can be in church, we can be around God's people, but we can still be far from the father. When we live our lives holding God at a distance, we are living less loved. When we relieve the pain of our lives by running to the things that enslave us, we live less loved. When we give in to anxiety or fear, we live less loved. 
And when we try to earn God's favor through our own efforts, we live less loved. It wasn't until the father ignored the younger son's rehearsed apology and his plan to work in the house as a slave and then showered his son with hugs and kisses and lavish gifts and an extravagant celebration that the son finally began to understand the father's love. Understanding the father's love for us and letting that love draw us near to him in a deep relationship with him is what it means to live loved. Point number three, the evidence of the hen. In the last day of his his life, Jesus said this in Matthew 23, 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. There is such longing Such emotion expressed in this verse, it paints paints a very clear picture of the loving tenderness of God and his deep sorrow over his people. The desire of God's heart can be clearly seen in these words. I read a story not too long ago of a group of firefighters who were checking the hot spots after the forest fire had been contained. Let me read this story to you. As they walked across the smoldering landscape, A big lump on the trail caught one firefighter's eye. As he got closer, he noticed that it was the charred remains of a bird. Since birds can so easily fly away from the approaching flames, the firefighter thought that wondered whether this bird was hurt. He wondered what was wrong with this bird. Maybe it's sick or maybe it had been injured. He kicked the dead bird off the trail with his boot And as he did, he was startled by a flurry of activity as four little birds flailed in the dust and ash and then scurried down the hillside. The bulk of the mother's body had uh, had covered the chicks from the searing flames. Though the heat was enough to consume her, it allowed her babies to find safety underneath. In the face of the rising flames, she stayed with her young. She was their only hope for safety. And willing to risk her own life, she gathered them together and covered them with her body. Even when the encroaching flames began to scorch her feathers, she could easily have flown away to start another family. But instead, she gave the ultimate sacrifice to save her young. Jesus pictured himself as a mother hen. He could see the firestorm of his people's sin and the coming destruction of Jerusalem. And even though these would be the very people who would cry out for his crucifixion just a week later, he still wanted to save them. Like a mother hen, he offered them safe protection under his wings. He was willing to endure even to the point of death to rescue all who would allow him to gather them in. What must it take for a bird to stay over her babies as the fire draws near and closer and begins to sear her back and her neck? What must it have taken for God to endure the fiery wrath our sins deserved and endure it to the end so that those under his wings might be saved? Point number four, the evidence of Easter revisited. In the passage that we read from Romans chapter 5, it said that God demonstrated the depth of his love for us by dying on the cross. Now, as Christians, we have become very numb to the primary message of the cross. We hear about it so often. But God always intended that the cross would be the ultimate expression of his love. In the midst of all the evidence in this life to the contrary, the cross was always to stand as definitive, irrefutable, proof of his love. As Jesus went to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, my my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow, even to the point of death. And then moments later, he said, Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. What is the cup that Jesus is referring to? Both the prophet Jeremiah And the apostle John in the book of Revelation referred to this cup as the cup of God's wrath. When Jesus was agonizing over what was to come, even to the point of sweating drops of blood, 
I think he was fully embracing the meaning of his suffering. And as horrible as his physical death was, I believe that it couldn't even compare with the suffering he endured as he drank the cup of God's wrath against sin. Remember, Jesus not only died for our sins, but he actually became sin that he might break the power of sin. It's impossible to imagine the battle that ravaged in his soul during those hours. And I believe that that battle reached its ultimate climax when Jesus cried out with a loud voice and said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which translated means, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why did Jesus say that? Did God actually forsake his own son? Now, some say that because Jesus became sin, God actually forsook his son because he couldn't look upon sin. I don't think that's true. Just before his crucifixion, Jesus said to his disciples, when you scatter and leave me all alone, I'm not going to be alone because my father is with me. God would never forsake his son. But in that moment, when Christ had entered the full darkness of shame and the bondage of sin, as God's wrath consumed sin in his body, he couldn't see or feel the presence of the father that he had known fellowship with for all eternity. And I believe that sin blinded him for the moment so that in that moment he actually felt forsaken and abandoned. For the first time ever, Jesus experienced what it was like to be fatherless. Now, the father was not standing at a safe distance away. He was a participant in the anguish that ripped through the Godhead. His father's heart must have hurt just as deeply as the pain of separation that Jesus experienced. And then in the greatest demonstration of trust, Jesus finally said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In the despair and the loneliness of the gut-wrenching agony of the cross, Jesus did what Adam and Eve could not do while they lived in the beautiful garden. He trusted the father. He trusted his father. The second Adam did what the first Adam did not. In his dying breath, he affirmed a heart of trust beyond comprehension. Why did he do it? He could have, he could have called a legion of angels at any moment who could have rescued him from the cross. Why did he willingly endure such indescribable agony? Because he knew what his suffering would accomplish. Hebrews 12.2 says, Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. The joy set before him, you guys, was us. We are the reward of his suffering. In the, in the, glory, the glory of being in fellowship with us for all eternity, believe it or not, outweighed the agony of the cross. That's how much he loves us. Is that a God you could love? Is that a God you could trust no matter what's going on in your life? Absolutely. That's the whole point of this message. In the midst of all the difficulties of life, the only response that makes sense is the response of Jesus, which is, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. I trust you in my life, no matter what is going on. That's what it means to live loved. So, what should our response be to this extraordinary love? In other words, how can we live loved? And that's point number two, living loved. The first thing we can do is not make a God out of our circumstances. I said to you before that we often live a performance-based Christianity without even knowing it. It shows up in our conversations all the time without, without us even giving a second thought about it. Now, I'm going to give you three examples of how this just shows up in daily life. And these examples go from the kind of benign and the humorous to the more tragic. The first example is kind of humorous. I mean, my brother and I like to golf. And sometimes we see some crazy things out on the golf course. Like I'll hit a shot. It'll slice into the woods, hit a tree, and then bounce right back into the middle of the fairway. Perfect. My brother looks at me from the other side of the fairway and he says, Are you kidding me? You lucky dog. It must be that good life you're living. <laughs> and of course, 
The implication is that the fortunate shot is a direct result of God blessing me because I'm living a good life. Here's a second example. This happened uh, just a couple of weeks ago. I had someone come into my office and they were just pouring their heart out. So many things were going on in their life. I mean, it was unbelievable all the bad things that were happening to this person. And how many of you know that life has a tendency sometimes to pile on, doesn't it? I mean, most of us can handle one or two bad things going on simultaneously, right? But when a half a dozen things just pile on, you know, we stand back and we say, what the heck is going on? Do I have a sign on my back that says, kick me? I mean, is there some divine plan to make my life miserable? And this, before this person left my office, they said, what have I done to deserve these things? What have I done to deserve all this trouble? And then the third example, a more tragic one. I was eight years old. And my mom had just been going through a very difficult miscarriage. And they, we actually called the ambulance. Um, and as they were carrying my mom away on the stretcher, I, I remember I was standing in the living room and the stretcher went right past me. And through tears, she, I heard her say this, this, is, this must be God punishing me for my sins. Oh, that made a huge impression on me as a little boy. And I've thought about that ever since. Even though these examples are significantly different from the lighthearted to the more serious, they all have one thing in common. They all make circumstances the ultimate source of our information about God. Folks, we can't give our circumstances the power to determine where we stand with God. We have to remember the lessons of Job. Job is one of the oldest and biggest books of the Bible, and it has a very important lesson to teach us. And that lesson is this. None of us are exempt from the hardships of life. If things are difficult for you right now, you shouldn't be surprised. God is not punishing you because of something you did wrong. We live in a fallen world with a very real enemy. And if things are going well for you right now, be grateful and enjoy it to the fullest. But don't be under the illusion that things are going well because you deserve it. (laughs) Rather, prepare for the trials ahead because they will come. Jesus promised us. He said, in this world, you would ha- we would have trouble. Expect it. Those trials don't mean that you're a bad person. Just as good times or a golf ball bouncing back into the fairway doesn't mean that you're a good person. We have to divorce our circumstances from the reality of who God is and how he feels about us. Amen or oh me. Mm-hmm. Now, few of us have lived as righteously as Job. Yet few of us have suffered more than Job. Job's friends tried to convince him that his hardships, the hardships he was experiencing, was because of things that he was or was not doing. And God flat out said that his friends were wrong. Now, God didn't offer a reason for Job's suffering, but in the end, it didn't matter. Once Job had a revelation about who God was, He knew that he could trust him no matter what he was going through. And that's the place that we need to get to. We need to get to a place of of unwavering trust in the goodness of God no matter what we're going through. I love the Psalms of David. David is so honest and so real about what he's feeling. But there's a greater reality for David that always superseded his difficulties. Let me give you an example. Let's put up that scripture from uh, Psalm 13. David says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? But, but, I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. Wait a minute, David. On the one hand, you're saying that God is nowhere to be found. He's not answering your prayers. You're depressed. You're full of sorrow, and there's no help from God. And on the other hand, you're saying you're praising God. You're telling him how much you trust him and how good he's been to you. Well, David, which is it? You can't have it both ways. David says, yes, I can. 
you don't know the big butt principle. (laughs) Honey, did the pastor just say big butt? (laughs) Yeah, I think he did. What kind of a church is this? (laughs) The big butt principle. You guys know what the big butt principle is because you use it all the time. It's when the words in the earlier part of the statement are negated by the words in the latter part of the statement with the three-letter word, but. I love you, honey, but. I appreciate your good intentions, but. Thanks for the criticism, but. You know that what comes after the big but is more important than what comes before the big but. And this is what David is saying in Psalm 13. He's saying, there's a current reality that I'm experiencing and acknowledging, and it's horrible. I hate it. David is honest. He's being gut-wrenchingly honest. But there is a greater reality that trumps my current circumstances, and it's that greater reality that I'm choosing to put my trust in and choosing to base my life on. You guys, that's what David does. Psalm after psalm after psalm. If you read it, he's gut-wrenchingly honest about what he's going through. But he hardly ends a psalm without declaring the faithfulness of God. You can see that there's a greater reality that he believes is even more real than the circumstances he's going through. We need to learn to practice the big but principle. Life is hard, but God is good. Life is not fair, but God is just. Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. When we use the big but principle, we are choosing to trust God and live in the higher reality of his goodness and love. That's what it means to live loved. Number two. How do we live loved? Don't be disillusioned with your disillusionments. Anytime God disappointments disappoints us or things don't work out the way we expect, there's a sense of disillusionment. But working through our disillusionments is an important part of discovering who God is, and it's an important part of learning what it means to walk with him in faith and trust. Being disillusioned just means that we have illusions about God that need to be dissed. Does that make sense? One thing that's always bothers me, that's always bothered me, is the words of Jesus when he gives us these outlandish promises about answers to prayer. You're familiar with those promises in the New Testament? Now, it's not difficult for me to understand why God would not answer selfish prayers. I like that scene in the, in the movie Bruce Almighty. You guys are familiar with Bruce Almighty, where Jim Carrey gets to be God for a couple of days. And, and he thinks, oh, this is great. And, you know, he's using his God powers to serve his selfish needs. Anyhow, he gets these voices in his head and he can't understand what they are. Finally, he realizes that all these voices in his head are the prayers of the people all over the world who are praying prayers. And he can't stand those voices in his head. So to get those voices out of his head, he just answers everybody's prayer, yes, yes across the board. And before you know it, everybody's winning the lottery. There's chaos that erupts all over the place. And and society as we know it just falls into chaos. So it's not difficult for me to see how God would not answer selfish prayers. But what about the unselfish prayers? Some of my greatest disappointments in life have to do with God not answering prayers that I thought were unselfish. I mean, why wouldn't God want to do what I'm asking him to do? (laughs) Now, if you look at the context of Jesus' promises around prayer, you always see that they're in in the midst of participating with what he's doing. I mean, Jesus never intended that prayer should be a way that we manipulate God into doing what we want him to do. I hate to think... What would have happened if God had answered the prayers exactly the way that I prayed them? I would never have come to know God as my father if he let me treat him like a genie in a bottle. The prayers that move God's heart are the ones that grow out of a trust in who he is and what he's doing. As Jesus was approaching the end of his life on this earth, he made a statement that I think provides great insight on how we should pray. 
In John 12, 27, he says this, Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So many times we pray, save me prayers. Now God is concerned about the details of our lives. And he loves to be our savior. Not just the savior of our sins, but saving us from things in daily life as well. But when all we pray is save me prayers, we're missing the big picture of what prayer is all about, which is glorifying God. When all we pray is save me prayers, we can find ourselves resisting God by praying against the very thing that God is using to transform my life. We can miss what God is doing because what he's doing doesn't look anything like the prayers I'm praying. I have to remember that when he doesn't answer what I, the prayer that I ask the way I ask it, it's because he's doing something different or better. I pray that he would deliver me from my circumstances and he wants to change me through them. I pray for things that I want. He's trying to teach me to trust him. I pray for things that would make me happy and he's trying to teach me that his grace is sufficient. I pray that he would rescue me so I don't have to go through this trial and he's trying to tell me or use this trial to change me so that I can better represent him to others. Here is the kind of prayer that the Father always answers. Father, may the purpose for which you have created me and placed me here on this earth be fulfilled completely. Father, glorify yourself through me. Now that prayer takes or removes self-interest and instead it asserts our trust in the Father who loves us deeply and knows how to bring about his purposes in our lives. And my final point today, and would the worship team please come up at this time? My final point today is this, our greatest challenge and our greatest choice. Nothing is more theologically certain than that God is faithful and trustworthy. But learning how to live in that trust through the twist and the turns of life can be one of the most difficult but important challenges that we face God knows how difficult it is to trust him. He's not threatened when you become angry or when you struggle to learn how to trust him. All he asks is that you keep your eyes on him and that you continue to learn from him. Don't disengage. Don't hold God at arm's length. Stay, keep your eyes on him and stay engaged and learn from him. He knows that only by trusting him can you participate in a relationship with him because relationships are built on trust. He also knows that you'll only be able to trust him to the degree that you're certain about his love. And that's why he went through such extraordinary measures to teach us about his love. Once we know that love, we can set aside all of our issues and we can embrace him and let him fulfill what began in his heart before the creation of the world. Our only choice is whether or not to live loved. I can choose to continue to play the daisy battle game through my circumstances to determine if he loves me. He loves me. He loves me not. Or I can choose to live in the awareness of his love. He has done everything to demonstrate his irrefutable love, but he won't make us walk in that love. It's our choice. And that's a choice we need to make every day of our lives. As God's dearly beloved people, Let's choose to live loved. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord.